Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim and Alan Ginchel. We're here to present part two of our conversation with Heather Smith and Catherine Menstead on Futures 2040. Here we go. The next section of the report is about emerging dynamics and asks how individuals, groups, governments and the global community will make choices in response to the structural forces that we discussed in the first part of the episode. The major theme is greater debate and contestation and the consequences for the cohesiveness of societies and the resilience of nation states. There is growing pessimism around the world about the future and there is greater distrust of leaders and institutions, and as a result, people are gravitating towards familiar and like-minded groups for their community and for their security, which of course is now, as a result, causing fragmentation and could well cause greater conflict into the future. There is an imbalance, the report says, and as, as was mentioned in the previous episode, between the public's demands and government's capacity to deliver on those demands, which is likely to lead to greater volatility inside democracies and perhaps more control inside non-democracies. So anyway, we've got three levels at which choices are going to be made. The level of society, the level of the state and internationally. So let's go in order here. And can I start with you, Catherine, at the societal level? And, and, and that, that section of the report sort of introduces the question with the label disillusioned, informed and divided. So what's your take on, 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 on how societies are going to respond? You've stolen my thunder there, Darren, because I was going to say it's not a very optimistic title in the society section. And it observes that both before the COVID pandemic and exacerbated by the COVID pandemic, we are living in a world where people are more distrustful and more pessimistic in terms of their outlook. And the watchwords in the infographic that describes the chapter are inequality, dislocation, economic slowdown and corruption. Two things that I think are really important to pull out that are highlighted in this section of the report. The first is the focus on, on identity and the second is the focus on information environments and the siloing of information environments. And so to take the first one, identity, I think that is something that has come to the fore more than ever. One, because we see, in some sense, cynical populists and extremist movements harnessing people's identity to serve their own political ends. That's a trend we've seen that's been particularly visceral in the last five or so years. But second, we also see in our hyper-connected, technologically enabled world of social media that identity often tends to be the way in which disinformation and propaganda spreads in, in the most profound ways because it's often by speaking to people's identities that you gain that sense of empathy and trust with them and create a sense of in-group which then enables political movements and political actions to happen. On the flip side of that, though, and I do think it's worth bringing this up, the report spends a bit of time talking about the way in which identity 
will feed into political movements, right? But I'm not sure that identity always triumphs. If you think about the way in which identity flourished in Hong Kong and then was arguably crushed by the power of a state in Hong Kong, I think it's relatively clear that its identity matters, but it's not always going to win. So, you know, the the, the number of or the percentage of people in, in Hong Kong who considered themselves Hong Kongers versus mainland Chinese escalated dramatically through protest movements, etc., right up until last year. And we've, of course, seen the Chinese Communist Party kind of come step back in and put an end to that trend. So I think identity matters and it's a way in which I think often in terms of the way in which it's cynically exploited rather than purely just a way to drive change. Do you see a distinction between identity and nationalism because I was going to mm-hmm. uh, my initial thought was is identity just a stand-in for baser sort of populist nationalism that we're seeing around the world and you kind of answered my question by saying well no not necessarily it can it can take a form like it did with the, the protests in Hong Kong and play out in ways that we don't expect but I guess my question about is about trends I mean are mm-hmm. we thinking about the harnessing of, of identity as mostly being about the rise of of nationalism is it around nation the nation that we're going to see this coherence or do you see much more fragmentation in different types of identities feeding up into into global politics well fragmentation is one of the watchwords of the report so (laughs) i think in some sense there are certain areas where we are seeing a resurgence of national identities but i think the the way in which it will be most significant is actually in terms of fragmentation and the report lists out a range of different kind of religious ethnic political identities which are becoming more salient and many of them are transnational they're crossing boundaries and and that's enabled by technology you can find any sort of niche identity it is possible to find your brethren somewhere in the online environment and we see that being actively exploited by the machine the digital machinery that sits on top of the internet whether that's kind of the less the the less objectionable which would be advertisers taking advantage of of identity and, and and social media taking advantage of identity through to agents of authoritarian influence harnessing identity in order to peddle propaganda and disinformation so sometimes it could strengthen governments and sometimes it could weaken them we can't really say in advance yeah, that's absolutely right. But I think wherever there is a particular trend, those status quo powers are going to try and find a way to use that trend to their advantage. So where there are forces of identity fragmenting the US polity, for instance, you see agents of Russian influence jumping in there and trying to exacerbate and take advantage of those aspects of identity, where there are different and new identities calcifying and growing with inside inside an authoritarian regime, you could expect that that authoritarian regime is not going to be very comfortable with those new and different socio-political ethnic identities, whatever they happen to be. And this is where it lays on as well to this notion of the changing information environment. And the report makes, it kind of highlights this paradox, right, that we are sitting in a sea of information. We are technically as citizens more informed than we've ever been, but also, again, more fragmented and dislocated and isolated because we're sitting in different walled gardens within the internet. And the report says that, you know, we've already seen this 
trend happening, but over the next 20 years, algorithms and social media platforms are going to drive us more into corners defined by our identity than perhaps by our sense of common destiny or citizenship more broadly. And that brings power to potentially social media companies, gatekeepers, information gatekeepers, which in turn, I'd argue, will bring power to states because there's often a very close relationship between big tech social media companies and the states that stand to gain from having those close relationships with them. Well, speaking of the state, that is the second level of analysis. And the report introduces the state with the labels tensions, turbulence and transformation. So Heather, can you talk us through what your thinking is here? Also not a very optimistic set of words because the the word or the language around a looming disequilibrium between existing and future challenges and the ability of systems and institutions to actually respond to them is is widening and the state is is front and center. So there's a couple of a couple of trends that the Nick pulls out. Firstly, is that high risk of an ongoing erosion of democracy and the rise of alternate sources of governance and all driven by what you said, Darren, that mismatch between what the public expects and what governments can deliver. But that pessimism cuts across all forms of governments, whether right, left wing, centrist, democratic, authoritarian, populist or technocratic administration. So it seems to be a a global phenomenon. Um, the Nick sort of calls out that democratic traits are deteriorating globally, but it, it raises the issue of whether this is a bad patch in history or whether this is going to be a, a concern about the long run legitimacy of democratic systems. And that hinges, that will hinge on two, two conditions. Firstly, the ability of governments to maintain a very fair, inclusive and equitable political process, and secondly, delivering positive outcomes for populations. So democracies, including Australia, are sort of vulnerable in sticking in this unequal, uneasy disequilibrium where people are not, uh, they're unsatisfied with the existing system, but they don't know how to get consensus to, to find a path forward on whatever comes next. So, you know, breaking out of that cycle really rests I think the Nick calls it out on capacity for adaptability and performance. So to me, that second theme that comes through the discussion around the role of the state is around the likely shift to adaptive approaches to governance and with many more actors, which we were talking about before, providing a wide range of services when you have political inertia, as you raised last week. So this also need not be a threat. It can be a positive force if there is an alignment with popular expectations about what the end point is. So as we mentioned last week, the pandemic, we saw obviously a number of non-state players really come together and work in an impressive manner to deliver a vaccine. What we didn't see was a distribution of the vaccine in a coordinated way where states moved together. And that's a point that's sort of brought out by the NIC. So I think the adaptive approaches can be usefully applied to other foundational challenges as pointed out in the report. It's interesting in our own country, if you think about, again, what we discussed on the last podcast, you've got global financial markets, you've got the Australian private sector, and you've got state governments who have arguably forced the hand of government, central government, to move into accepting the need for a transition of the economy into a less carbon intensive world that 
than would otherwise be the place. So we've also seen, on the other hand, where governments have strengthened their role at a faster pace than I think is predicted in the in the Nick report in reining in the significant power of the technology companies. So they've been ahead of the curve, or at least they've responded to societal concerns and are trying to balance the benefits of technology and with social license and national security. So we are sort of seeing a shift, which may not be either a good or a bad thing, hence this looming disequilibrium, which we really don't quite understand what the endpoints will be. But in the end, that transforming that discontent into something different is still going to require that combination of, of leadership and unifying leadership and the ability to bring compelling ideas and build coalitions and consensus. So... Public trust is clearly a feature in this. And I remember in our last our last podcast discussion, we discussed the erosion of trust in Australian government and, and institutions before the pandemic. And what's sort of interesting to me is, is after clearly that long period of time, and we did discuss it in the podcast, was this an opportunity to restore trust in government in the Australian context? And it was certainly for the first stage of the pandemic when everybody was moving in the one direction and expertise was being brought to bear. But that's been followed by a splintering of trust, obviously as criticism of the vaccine rollout and as states have, have sought to assert their own role in closing their borders. So so you have this contradiction, again, this, this, this equilibrium where in this case, Australians obviously trust their state governments to protect their health, but look to their, their central government to look after their overall welfare and national security. So, so I think, you know, there's this issue going forward for a country like Australia about how do you renew a damaged Australian governance model, given what we've seen in terms of the federation. And I think that's an interesting example of how that applies across across different countries. I mean, the only other thought I'd had, I was looking at the Edelman Trust Barometer, which they've just updated, or they updated earlier in the year, as you know, it covers 27 countries in this case. And what was striking to me, having had that short period of trust in government, is that business was seen as the only institution that was competent and ethical and government was a distant last. So, so interestingly, public expectations around business are that business in some areas will fill the void of, of government. So also sort of quite striking in that survey to me was how the pandemic had given rise to this greater sense of urgency to address foundational pro problems of the ones we're discussing. So again, as you know, in answer to your question in our previous podcast about how do you get political and how do you stop that political inertia, there's sort of an example of, of a crisis followed by, you know, some serendipity in some ways, but also other coalitions coming together to move issues along. Without diminishing you know, the challenges that we face here in Australia, I still, reading that section, thought to myself, we're in a better position, relatively speaking, than the rest of the world. Like we're we're small enough that we can maintain sort of a, seem to be more coherent than some, somewhere as big as, as India or, or as, as the United States. But we're large enough still to have some some gravity in the international system. I mean, is could it being a relatively better functioning? Sort of democracy be a source of, of strength for us? Did you get that sense as well? Am I being overly optimistic? I'll, I'll go to you first, Heather, but I'm curious also if Catherine has a take on this. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. I think, you know, two aspects of that. Obviously, 
your economic weight, you know, is still very important about what you do at home really determines what you can do offshore and and your your democratic system and the principles that underline that and defending that. And we've seen that in relation to a pushback with China that, you know, Australia has been seen as standing up for its values and probably been much more focused on Australia by virtue of, of what has transpired than would otherwise be the case. So I agree with the, the fundamental question that you're asking. Catherine? Would you evaluate our political system as, as a strength, I suppose? I mean, you, you've studied you know, the fragmentation of societies and the fracturing and, the, and disinformation. When you look out to 2040, is Australia probably going to be one of the better performing polities and, and could that be a strength for us internationally? I'm certainly in the camp that says that open and democratic societies are going to be able to much better combat the trends in the report and are going to be able to use one of the main themes of the report, the only kind of positive theme, which is adaptation to our advantage. In terms of Australia's own political system, interestingly, during the pandemic, despite global headwinds in terms of trust, there was on some surveys a bit of an uptick in the way in which Australians trusted their government. So I also don't think that we necessarily need to buy into the abject pessimism that sometimes comes through this report, situated as it is in the context of America, coming off the back of the Trump presidency. I think there is a way for Australia to actually be a country that bucks some of the trends outlined in this report. Okay, well, let's get to the third level of analysis. And to you, Alan, this is the international level, which the report introduces as more contested uncertain and conflict-prone. Terms that, when I read them, seemed entirely congruent with what you've said on the podcast many times before. So what's your thinking on this trajectory right now? Yeah, well, unsurprisingly, I didn't have an issue with any of the conclusions reached in the report. It places the relationship between the US and China as the central dynamic in the international system. Well, you know, no question there. And it says that their rivalry is going to affect every domain of international relations, Dick. It does conclude that even under the most modest estimates, their words, Beijing is poised to continue to make military, economic and technological advancements that will shift the geopolitical balance, particularly in Asia. But look, for me, the most interesting section of this part of the report was the way it identified the reasons why there is an increasing risk of interstate conflict that, you know, went beyond, you know, obvious Thucydides trap sort of stuff. It lists advances in technology and an expanding range of targets, new frontiers for conflict and a greater variety of actors, more difficult deterrence and a weakening or lack of treaties and norms on acceptable use. All of that, I thought, was pointedly interesting. The report doesn't claim that war is inevitable. It says that major powers are going to want to avoid it, but it does lay out the prospect that conflict could break out through misadventure or unwillingness to compromise. A second important point for me was that there's not going to be much help from international organisations. They're going to lack the capacity to manage the transnational challenges, the existing transnational challenges like climate change, migration, economic crises, 
and that in turn will place pressure on established international norms and therefore make it harder to develop the new norms we need in areas like cyber, space, seabeds and the Arctic. So all that's a pretty depressing analysis and for obvious reasons, which we've touched on already, the world in 2040 looks only very elliptically at what may be the single greatest uncertainty of the next 20 years, which is whether the United States can manage its political and economic dysfunction and remain the leader of a broad and liberal global coalition. So that's a great hole in the middle of this donut, I think. Yeah, that all makes sense to me, Alan, and this is all very familiar terrain for our, our podcast, so our listeners are probably most familiar with these issues. So let's turn now to the final section of the report, which looks at possible scenarios. You know, basically, the idea is if you take everything that's been discussed, you get a, a wide and very wild range of possible outcomes. And so the authors make an effort to map out five distinct futures. And I think it is important to, to summarise them, but I'll try to do so as briefly as possible for those that have not read the report. First, you have what's called the Renaissance of Democracies. The world is in the midst of a resurgence of open democracies led by the United States and its allies, helping improve lives around the world. China and Russia are stultified by social controls and monitoring stifling innovation. And it's notable that that was the first scenario that they posit, presumably for their political masters. Number two is called world adrift. The international system is directionless, chaotic, and volatile, as international rules and institutions are largely ignored. Slower growth, wider social divisions, and political paralysis in the OECD countries. China takes advantage of the West's troubles to expand its international influence many global challenges are unaddressed. Third, competitive coexistence. The US and China have prioritized economic growth and restored a robust trading relationship, but this economic interdependence exists alongside competition over political influence, governance models, tech dominance, and strategic advantage. The risk of major war is low, and international cooperation and tech innovation make global problems manageable. Four, separate silos. The world is fragmented into several economic and security blocks of varying size and strength centered on the US, China, the EU, Russia, and a few regional powers, and focused on self-sufficiency, resiliency, and defense. Information flows within separate cyber sovereign enclaves, supply chains are reoriented, and international trade is disrupted. Vulnerable developing countries are caught in the middle. Fifth and finally, tragedy and mobilization. Following a global food catastrophe caused by climate events and environmental degradation, a global coalition led by the EU and China working with non-government organizations and revitalized multilateral institutions implements far-reaching changes designed to address climate change resource depletion, and poverty. So we have five, just five, of innumerable possible scenarios. So I want to bring all of you in. And Alan, I might start with you, actually. What, what do you see in 2040? What was the most resonant of these scenarios to you? And I guess, how should Australia act in response? 
Look, gloomily, I'm a world adrift guy. I don't think, as far as Australia is concerned, that we're up for this sort of world at all. For all the rhetoric that we hear from our political leaders about the world facing unprecedented challenges, I'm not convinced that we have internalised those challenges in terms other than the shifting power balance between the United States and China. So the implications of climate change, fragmenting institutions, demographic shifts, greater debt burdens, a world in which divisions between developed and developing countries increase, the eroding of global norms, all of this, I think, are going to make it harder for Australia to prosper. As I've um, said before, if you, you know, if you had wanted to design a system perfectly suited to Australia's interests, you couldn't have done better than the international order between about 1990 and 2010, and that's now over. So for me, Australia is just not positioning itself defensively to expand the space available to it in the international environment so we can advance our interests and protect our values in any of the innumerable ways, which as the report lays out, the world might unfold. Heather. So I thought I'd come at this question by looking back in order to sort of look forward. But I just wanted to preface that just because both you and Catherine called this report a political document. And I'm, I'm not sure that I sort of agreed with that assessment of it. I agree with the assessment of the extent to what Alan said before, that the, the big unknown here is really US domestic evolution and what that means for the US's place and role in the world. So, but having, having said that, I think going back to look at several global trends reports to see whether any of those enduring trends of the past are a guide to a future. And, and bear with me, because I think they buy largely. When you look at the 2008 report, which looked out to 2025, it it really characterised an emerging global multipolarity. It concluded that the international system would be almost unrecognisable by 2025, more ramshackled than orderly, work in progress, and a transition fraught with risk. The 2012 report looking out to 2030, probably reflecting the benign economic times, really just focused on individual empowerment and the rise of the middle class. But it was notable for really calling out how in previous reports, they had consistently underestimated the speed of China's rise. It was also notable for highlighting two black swan events, and that turned out to be quite prescient. One was an episode or a collapse or retreat of US power from the world. Let's call that the Trump era. And then a severe pandemic where it warned, to quote, an easily transmissible novel respiratory pathogen could result in millions of people suffering and dying in every corner of the world in less than six months. So as a black swan event, and that is obviously what we've lived through and more. The 2017 report looking out to 20. 35 was around the paradox of progress where we had this industrial information transformation starting, but the world was becoming more dangerous and richer at the same time. The unipolar moment had passed and the rules-based order was probably fading. So also prescient when you think about the question of what does this mean for Australia, it said the most powerful actors of the future will draw on networks, relationships and information to compete and cooperate. 
that's the lessons of great power politics in the 1900s, even if those powers had to learn and relearn it. So I think that's that's a, a useful point to keep in mind. So what's striking to me across several of those of the Nick reports is the consistency of the foundational drivers that will shape our world, but the inability of governments to prepare for them. There's no surprises when you think of all the things we've been talking about, the rise of Asia with all the geopolitical complexity, the demographic transition, the disruption role of technology, environment events and climate change. So again, these are the inbuilt drivers of humanity when you think about it. So for me, as you expect, I'm sort of fence sitting between three scenarios, but to, to narrow it down as best I can, I'm, I'm probably in the world of weirdly world adrift and competitive coexistence, but without as much economic integration between the US and China as is implied within the certainly the summary. So in that environment, that is a model that really challenges Australia. We're now in this world, we are now a smaller, older population with a higher dependency ratio, with a higher stock of debt, and therefore at heightened vulnerability to the next shock. We're not unique, but that is the circumstances that we face. It'll be harder for Australia to make its way in this type of world. We won't be able to rely on the old playbook. I'm not sure modern monetary theorist is going to be the solution to that, by the way, but we'll really have to fight against our historical instincts and not fall into that quasi-protectionist mindset as we necessarily try to shore up our resilience. And I think, you know, finally, we're going to need a greater sense of urgency in planning in our long-term economic security, at least as equivalent to the renewed focus that is being placed on our defence and national security. Catherine. The first observation I'd make is that none of these scenarios are particularly good. Four out of five of them are abjectly grim. And the one that sounds good, Renaissance of Democracies, has a Russia and China who are, as a consequence, less predictable and more aggressive. So it's continuing the trend of pessimism across the report. The other thing I think is really interesting is that all of these scenarios really are imagining a post-American world, or at least a world of post-American primacy. Even the renaissance of democracies scenario is renaissance of democracies, plural. Yes, America is having a leadership role, but perhaps not the type of leadership role that would have been carved out for America had we have done these scenarios 10, 15, 20 years ago. On that, and I think that's a, a big shift I should add, from, from, from America, where even the notion of including terms like multipolarity and relative decline, I understand from, from reading some of the, the writing around the manufacturing of the global trends reports at the beginning of the Obama administration, when those words started to, to, to creep in, that was controversial at the time. So I think we're seeing a change in the way America perceives itself. Thirdly, yeah, I agree with with Heather, that this isn't a political document in the traditional sense, but I do think that it nonetheless is a document that is saying something, and particularly once we get to the scenarios where there's a whole lot of choice about what scenarios you choose to model and which you don't, I think that, again, it is a relatively American-centric view, and it is saying something to the readers of the report. I think, and that is that American leadership is a good thing and that without it, the world looks pretty bad. I 
happen to agree with that approach. But I think if you were reading these scenarios based on the same trends, even out of Europe or more controversially out of, out of Russia or China or even South America, the scenarios would look quite different and what good looks like and what bad looks like would, would differ accordingly. So this is a report by a status quo power, I suppose, and that feeds in to the way that the scenarios fall out. In terms of where I, if I had to imagine myself into one of these, I see myself weirdly sitting between scenario one renaissance of democracies and scenario four separate silos i think that there is a lot to be said that the fragmentation that is the theme the watchword of this report will continue and that we'll see the emergence of as the scenario says different economic and security blocks i think technology will not be a unifier, it will not be a universal thing. I think we'll see, as the scenario says, the rising of cyber barricades. I think we already see that. We see countries at once advocated for a free and open internet increasingly, and Australia's part of this, asserting the need for there to be more control and more domestic law and policy asserted over the, over the internet and over data. And that's both a good and a thing, but it's also a thing that has has trade-offs and negatives that come with it. My problem is that I'm not sure that in this world of separate silos we'll really reach an equilibrium. This scenario seems almost to skip over what the relations between states look like in that world, a world where states are more self-sufficient, there's less interdependence, globalisation is reversing, nuclear weapons are proliferating in, in search of security, self-sufficiency and I'm not sure where that leaves us yeah I mean just to to, gi- to give my two cents I was probably closest to a mix of three and four rather than one and four so that's competitive coexistence in separate silos and I think I agree with what Catherine said on separate silos and the reason why I'd, I'm not long on democracy I suppose in the way that scenario one sort of implies is that I still haven't worked out how democratic systems are going to resolve this real sort of equalization of, of power that you have groups who have historically been marginalized, who now have a lot more power to contest politics. And that is in some ways evening the playing field. Yes, there's still inequality economically, but politically you've got the ability to use technology to mobilize in ways to, to knock down elites and to kick out governments just because you oppose what they what they've done, oppose them without necessarily having a an alternative, right? Um, this is the Martin Gurry thesis of the revolt of the public, and I don't know yet how. Demo- I mean, I'm I, I'm slightly optimistic, but I still don't see quite how democracies are going to work through that sort of change in the political power balance between elites and publics, the change in the way information flows from, you know, from information creators down to publics and is created indeed from a bottom-up perspective. And that's the greatest uncertainty for me about 2040. But I also don't know what it's going to look like on the authoritarian side. I'm reminded that no one really saw the collapse of the Soviet Union coming. It was a great surprise. And so we we don't see how these how these features nearly you know, work, are working through non-democracies nearly as clearly. And so it's an even bigger black box. You know, we see efforts to control and we see the latest crackdowns on, on technology and companies in China or we see to crackdowns on, on human rights in, in Russia and we see efforts by the Bolsonaros of the world to, to do their own thing. But again, I don't, 
I don't quite see how that plays out. And I think how the, the relative capabilities or capacities of the two types of governing models to work through you know, technology and to work through economic interdependence is the, the great question. I, I do think there are pressures for decoupling in some areas, which is why separate silos make sense. But for me, I just I, I just genuinely don't know. And that's what I'm, I'm really looking towards. Okay, well, look, we've been here for a very long time. And so thank you, Heather and, and, and Catherine, for, for bearing with us. But do, is there any final thoughts you want to leave us with you know, lasting, yeah, lasting impressions on the report or on the on the general utility of this of this exercise. Maybe Catherine, if I could throw to you, is there any 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 last thoughts, please? Two quick thoughts from me. The first is that it is right and proper to have a difference between intelligence and policy. But I think what we're butting up against in analysing this document is that sometimes you want that intelligence to go further and to be more actionable and more persuasive in shaping what decision makers do with it. This reads to me like a Cassandra-like lamentation of all of the bad things careening towards us. And the intelligence community, by law, in the US can't offer solutions, but someone has to. And then the second thing is, is a bit gentler, and that is that one of the things ultimately in any document like this is the importance of humility and to acknowledge fallibility. This isn't supposed to be a prediction of what the world will look like in 2040. It's an analytical exercise to help us understand trends that we should care about. And it's particularly in the scenarios, it's telling us stories about what the world could look like so that we can navigate towards the, the best story and avoid the worst story. And right from the beginning, the report says that it is presented, it is offered with humility and that the Nick knows that invariably the future will unfold in unexpected ways. And that's the beauty of something like this. Nothing is set in stone. There is no such thing as fate. It is up for us to shape it. And looking at a report like this, we can see so many different areas where the time is absolutely right for us as citizens, but also as Australia, to figure out where we should be shaping and how we should do it. Heather? Probably... Darren, where I started on the previous episode is that I, I do think this is quite a unique approach. I, I don't see I don't see the bureaucratic system, I don't see it in academia, I don't see it elsewhere where you can bring a really integrated, interdependent view and come down with scenarios that are reasonably realistic. You see lots of futures exercises where you shock the system and often they're shocked by variables that, you know, you can have a debate as to whether that's the right shock or not. So to me, you know, that network grid of drivers and the dynamics of which are very hard to predict individual society, states and international institutions is probably the best example I've seen because that's not how policymakers think. And so it's a great training tool, as I said at the beginning, in a world where economics and security now have to become one in order to advise government. So I do think they're foundational documents and I do think they add value to the system, which is why I said last week I think it's worth thinking about within our own system. And, you know, it goes to how Australia has to position itself in the world. It's going to have to be a network grid where in building our resilience, we, we're thinking about, you know, what are the offence and defensive tools that we have in our kit in order to navigate this world? And again, the more holistic the picture is and we understand the trade-offs across sectors and across actors 
at least you know that translation into advice if the bureaucracy is doing its job in a more integrated way going forward should help decision makers understand those trade-offs and make decisions now they are very hard to make decisions under uncertainty you think of the first six months of the pandemic in a policy sense you know really high uncertainty but a very good outcome in terms of the national response so it can be done it can be done i think we can learn from crisis management just as the nick obviously has a wealth of crisis management episodes in US economic and political and strategic history to also feed into its thinking. So so I really enjoyed the conversation. I thought it was, you know, a really, really rich one and, and really important one. So thank you. Thanks very much for having me. Well, on behalf of Alan and me, thank you so much to both of you. We've been here for a long time. It's going to be a double episode. But look, that is that's the vision of the podcast. These are big meaty issues they deserve long conversations we're not quite at the point of joe rogan of dropping a three-hour episode on our listeners yet um but look i think we would be justified in doing so but thank you it was really fascinating you're both very busy so we really appreciate you taking the time and we hope that we'll be able to bring you back on the podcast again in the future so heather thank you Catherine, thank you thanks darren thanks darren And that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. As always, we thank Mitchell McIntosh for audio editing today and Rory Stedding for composing our theme music. We look forward to talking with you again soon. 